You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On Monday, December 20th, 1976, around 4.30 p.m., 14-year-old Kenny Jumper was checking a trap line he had set on the riverbank on the east side of the Lehigh River in Eastside Borough, Carbon County, Pennsylvania. The boy was in the woods on an old access road that ended at the riverbank below the exceedingly high I-80 bridge spanning the Lehigh River, and there he came upon an open black suitcase right near the base of one of the massive bridge supports. A human head lay against a rock, spilled out of the gaping bag. Kenny had been to this spot several times. The last time had been December 12th, eight days earlier. There had certainly not been a head and suitcase then. Kenny ran to his house on Tannery Road, just 300 yards away, and told his older brother Richard what he'd seen. Richard, who was 19, undoubtedly was skeptical of his little brother's story. He went over to the spot and looked for himself. Then he walked back home and called the state police at Troop N in nearby Hazleton. There were three suitcases in all, and they all contained body parts. The sex of the dismembered body whose parts were in the bags could not immediately be determined. But the sex of the nearly full-term fetus, which was lying in weeds ten feet east of one of the bags, was evident. It was a baby girl. Based on where the suitcases were found, about 20 feet from the river's edge under the bridge, it was not a leap to conclude that someone passing over the Lehigh River via the I-80 bridge had tossed the bags over the westbound side, aiming for the waterway below. This from the Hazleton Standard Speaker, quote, The impact of the 300-foot fall broke two of the suitcases open, scattering the head, torso, and the fetus. The third suitcase, which remained intact, contained the arms and legs, end quote. That third suitcase, unlike the first two found on the wooded riverbank, was found on ice that had formed along the river's edge. Trooper Frank Grippy said the suitcase tosser probably assumed he was throwing them into the river. It seemed likely that the suitcases were dumped off the bridge in the dark of night, when the person who threw them could not quite make out the edges of the river below. Some of the body parts were wrapped in newspapers which had been sodden by rain and weather, and detectives couldn't discern what publications they were. The body parts in the third suitcase, the feet, hands, and arms, were wrapped in a cut piece of a pink chenille bedspread, bits of which were in the other bags as well. The Carbon County Coroner Robert Delbert, who came to the scene to try to figure out what the police were dealing with, told the media that he couldn't make a determination at the time about who the victim was. 
he stated that the nose and ears were missing. They weren't even certain what sex the victim was, although he drew a preliminary conclusion that the dismembered adult body was that of a woman. The body parts were placed in plastic and removed to a name of the hospital I'm surely going to mess up, Naden Hewton Hospital in Lehighton for examination. There, Dr. Halbert Fillinger, assistant head of the Philadelphia County Medical Examiner's Office, arrived to make a determination as to the sex of the adult, figure out what parts were missing, and figure out whether all the parts belonged to the same person. As it was already dark by the time police arrived at the scene, they shut down the area under the bridge and resumed the search at 7 the next morning. They were looking for any additional body parts. They thought some could have been dragged away by animals. No more parts were found. The nose and ears were missing, perhaps consumed by wildlife. Troopers gathered the waterlogged newspaper the parts had been wrapped in and laid them out to dry, hoping to learn the origin of the publication. At least they would have a place to start. One of the papers was determined to be the New York Sunday News from September 26th, which circulated in northern New Jersey. At a three-hour autopsy on Tuesday, Dr. Fillinger determined that indeed the adult victim was a female. She was likely in her late teens or early 20s. Miraculously, given what they had to work with, Dr. Fillinger was able to determine a cause of death. It was manual strangulation, and the victim had been shot in the neck posthumously. The M.E. noted that the body parts were not decomposed. Whoever they belonged to had been alive until very recently before she was found. But she had virtually no distinguishing characteristics that aided in identifying her. She had medium-length brown hair, brown eyes, olive skin, no jewelry or tattoos, blood type O. It was all very common. However, there were a couple of features or aspects that were thought that could aid in naming her. She had a two-inch scar on her left ankle and two moles on her face. She had some ink writing on the palm of her left hand, the letters WSR, followed by some numbers believed to be 4, 5, and 7. And she had quite distinctive dental features. This from the Doe Network, quote, She had suffered extensive dental disease resulting in three extractions, multiple restorations, and extensive decay. Her oral hygiene improved as she got older, but at the time of her death, she was still suffering from tooth decay and a fracture to her upper right lateral incisor, end quote. This cracked tooth would have been quite painful. Someone who knew her might remember her distress. As for the fetus, it was near full term, having reached a gestation of approximately eight months. The ME believed that the fetus belonged to the woman because her torso had been cut open. All the cuts that removed the baby and dismembered the Jane Doe's body were done with precision by a very sharp, serrated blade. This was a double murder. Carbon County District Attorney Richard Webb disclosed to the media after the autopsy that the medical examiner had concluded the victim was Caucasian of possible Mediterranean extraction. She weighed about 150 pounds and was between 4 foot 11 and 5 foot 4. She had likely died on Sunday, December 19th. This meant that Kenny had found the suitcases almost immediately after they had been discarded. After the autopsy, the body was sent to the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's office. The medical examiner there was able to obtain a good fingerprint from the severed hand of the victim. The print was sent to the FBI for analysis, but, of course, if the victim had never been fingerprinted, the print would not be of much help. Nonetheless, it was sent to multiple state and national databases over the ensuing years. 
A forensic dentist and anthropologist were brought in to aid in the preparation of a sketch. A drawing of the victim was prepared, which must have been a challenge absent a nose. The detailed black-and-white sketch was circulated in the media within a week of the discovery. And the victim's description and a photo of her head were distributed to police agencies throughout Pennsylvania and beyond. Police asked anyone who might have seen a vehicle stopped on the bridge to please call in the information. The suitcases were tossed over the westbound side of the bridge, police knew, because the eastbound lanes of the highway were on a separate bridge several hundred feet away. Speaking of the suitcases, they had no identifying marks of any sort. They were all the same size, 23 by 14 by 7 and a half. And interestingly, someone had taken great lengths to obscure them. The suitcases were two matching blue suitcases with a triple stripe and one blue and tan plaid suitcase. But they had been spray-painted black, probably to help them blend in with the river bottom. And the handles had been cut off, perhaps to remove any evidence of prints. Attempts to trace the origins of these suitcases led nowhere. Again, this from the Doe Network, quote, Inside the suitcases, the police also found straw, dry packing foam, a cut-up chenille bedspread, and six sections of the New York Sunday News dated September 26, 1976. The bedspread was most likely originally pink in color. However, the worn and dirty condition made it appear more rust or coral-colored. The bedspread had an embroidered yellow flower design, end quote. Photos of this bedspread are available online. It's quite distinctive. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Beth Doe, as the unidentified woman in the suitcases came to be called, and her daughter, were kept at the Philadelphia morgue until 1983. Then they were buried in Lorytown Road Cemetery, Carbon County's Potter's Field, with a simple white cross reading simply, Beth Doe. The case reverberated throughout the quiet rural county, and people often left flowers on the grave of the unnamed Beth Doe and her baby. Over the years, police issued very lifelike sketches of Beth Doe. After all, unlike in the cases of so many Doe's who are just bones, they could see for themselves what her face looked like, minus her nose, of course. And besides the sketches, the amount of work and resources that went into trying to identify Beth Doe were truly staggering. She was entered into NCIC, NamUs, and VICAP as those databases all became available. NCMEC took on the case in 2002 at the request of the Pennsylvania State Police and issued numerous facial reconstructions over the years. On October 30, 2007, investigators exhumed Beth Doe and her baby for updated DNA testing. The simple wooden box that held their remains was carefully dug out by hand so as not to damage anything inside. According to the standard speaker, quote, a forensic pathologist, two forensic dentists, and a forensic anthropologist examined the remains and harvested samples for possible DNA, end quote. Investigators had been concerned that they wouldn't be able to get DNA, but Beth Doe still had tissue available, 
and some samples were taken and sent to the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification in Fort Worth. An STR DNA sample was obtained, and Beth Doe was entered into CODIS's unidentified human remains database. But no matches were obtained. Whoever her family was, they had not submitted their own DNA to law enforcement in their search for her. The process did allow investigators to rule out some missing people whose DNA did not match. Beth Doe and her baby were reburied again on November 1st, again in a grave with no name, but this time in a metal box and with a short ceremony attended by about 20 people. Area men of the cloth said prayers. A new composite sketch was also issued by forensic artist Frank Bender. These showed Beth Doe with a wider nose than two sculptures that had been done in years past. It was a guess, of course, since there was no nose, but investigators hoped that the new sketch might resemble Beth Doe enough that someone looking for her would recognize her. People also re-interviewed Kenny Jumper, who had found the suitcases under the bridge years earlier. He remembered everything, but had no additional information that was of help to investigators. In 2004, Penn State Police cold case investigator Tom McAndrew was the head investigator on the case. He submitted tooth enamel, bone, and hair samples from Beth Doe to an anthropology professor from the University of South Florida for chemical, stable, and heavy isotope analysis. This from the morning call, quote, The new process can divine the chemical content of water a murder victim ingested and then match the chemicals to a specific location. The findings suggest the woman found at the bottom of a bridge wasn't a local girl. If the findings are correct, Beth Doe was born and spent her early childhood in Western or Central Europe. She moved to the United States as a child or teenager. She spent at least five to ten years in the U.S. before her murder. She also most likely became pregnant in this country. And based on fetal analysis, she probably lived in the southeast, possibly somewhere in eastern Tennessee. End quote. Investigators started looking at missing persons cases from the volunteer state, but struck out. That's because, unfortunately, the isotope testing pointed in the wrong direction. Beth Doe's dental records were featured in the American Dental Association newsletter in 2013, in hopes that a dentist somewhere would take note. Then, in 2015, two new images of Beth Doe were released by NCMEC, along with digital images of the suitcases, enhanced to show what they looked like without the black spray paint. Then, in 2020, Pennsylvania investigators and Nick Meck submitted a piece of Beth Doe's femur to DNA Labs International to extract a DNA sample that could possibly generate a SNP profile suitable for forensic genealogy. In November 2020, the sample was sent to Othram Labs. This from the Othram press release, quote, The Othram team used a combination of forensic-grade genome sequencing and proprietary human enrichment to produce a genealogical profile for Beth Doe. There was plenty of DNA. However, the challenges in this case were degradation and bacterial contamination. In February 2021, the Othram team returned the genealogical profile to NCMEC and DNA Labs International. They identified a top match in a genealogical database with over 1,700 centimorgans of shared DNA to Beth Doe, end quote. 1,700 centimorgans meant that the top DNA relative, a male, was likely a half-sibling, grandfather, uncle, grandson, or nephew of Beth Doe. Investigators reached out to this top DNA relative. His name was Luis Colon Jr., and the genealogist suspected from the family tree 
that he was Bethel's nephew on his father's side. Louise Jr. had entered his DNA into 23andMe and at least one of the open-source databases because he was looking for someone, someone in his family who had gone missing in the mid-1970s. Louise Jr. was looking for his father's sister, his aunt, Evelyn Cologne. He had never heard of Beth Doe. He had assumed his aunt was alive. Louise Jr. was interviewed on CNN. He said, quote, About four years ago, I heard about the DNA stuff, and I wanted to see, hey, this would be an awesome tool if I could connect with family and specifically connect with my cousin, because I knew she had a kid or cousins, multiple children. So I got the kits, purchased one for me, for my wife, ordered another one from another website, because I felt the more sites I'm on, the more chance that something would come from that, end quote. Louise said that his DNA relatives revealed in the databases included a lot of very distant cousins, but never his missing aunt. Then he said, quote, I get notified that, hey, your DNA was matched to a victim of a homicide. So we get in touch and they asked me, do you know anyone in your family? And I immediately, once they reached out to me, I knew it was her, end quote. The investigators told Louise Jr. about Beth Doe. He researched her case and found her Wikipedia page. He sent that, along with some of the sketches of Beth Doe, to his sister, Miriam Cologne Veltman. She told CNN, quote, We never heard of Beth Doe, ever. As soon as I saw the picture, I said, That looks like my niece. So I called my brother, and I'm like, Hey, bro, what is this link you sent me? He took a deep breath. My brother, he's a very emotionally stable person. So for him to take a deep breath like that, that's a big deal for him, end quote. It was her. Evelyn Cologne, a.k.a. Beth Doe, date of birth April 17, 1961, was identified within hours of her SNP profile being uploaded to the open-source databases. Investigators spoke at length with Louise Jr.'s father, Louise Sr., Evelyn's brother. He told them that his sister Evelyn Cologne was last seen by the Puerto Rican immigrant family of seven in late 1976. Evelyn was 15 and had gotten pregnant by her boyfriend. The boyfriend had lived next door to the family on 6th Street in Jersey City, and he and Evelyn met and started dating. When Evelyn got pregnant, she moved in with him at the apartment he had moved to in Jersey City in the upstairs level of a house. He told Evelyn's family he would take care of her and their baby and also help Evelyn with obtaining the dental care she needed for tooth pain. Now, to state the obvious, it would not be considered acceptable or illegal for any of this to happen today. Evelyn's niece Miriam told CNN, quote, Back then, things were a little different. It was a different culture, a different time in the 70s. You get your girlfriend pregnant, you move out, and that's how it is, end quote. Anyway, when Evelyn was living with her boyfriend, she stayed in touch with her mom, Aurelia Torres, by phone. Evelyn's sister, Migdalia Colon, recalled that in mid-December of 1976, Evelyn told their mother she wasn't feeling well. Aurelia said she would bring over some soup, the universal mom cure-all. But when Aurelia arrived at the house where the apartment Evelyn shared with her boyfriend was, she found the apartment empty. The downstairs neighbor said the young couple had moved out. Evelyn and the boyfriend were gone. The family didn't know how to find Evelyn. They worried about her and tried to find her. But just a month after they last spoke with her, in January of 1977, the family received a letter in the mail postmarked from Stamford, Connecticut, with an illegible return address. It was purportedly from Evelyn. The letter said in Spanish that Evelyn had had their baby, a nine-pound boy, named after his father, and she and the baby were both doing well. 
She said she would be in touch if she needed anything. The family knew that Evelyn could not have written the letter. She didn't know how to write. They assumed the boyfriend had written it. The Colognes did not report Evelyn missing. Based on the letter, they assumed she had moved away and was happily raising her baby and living her life. And Evelyn's parents didn't speak much English. They probably felt that their concerns would be ignored by police. Luis Jr. told journalist Claudia Rivero that, quote, After a couple years, we went to the police department, but the police said you cannot report a person missing if they live with the person or unless she's held hostage from the boyfriend. So when we showed them the letter, that was it. We tried, but we gave up a little bit and waited to see if she would show up in Jersey City, end quote. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. In August 2008, Sarah Widmer, a healthy 24-year-old woman, is found dead in her bathtub just four months after marrying her husband, Ryan, the only person at home with Sarah that night. Suspicion quickly fell on Ryan, leading to his arrest and conviction for Sarah's murder. But could this have been a tragic accident? Ryan has adamantly maintained his innocence for the last 15 years. Now, two-season criminologists examine this very controversial conviction for the murder of his wife, Sarah. This case is the one with the most unanswered questions. Now we're looking for a murder attorney. Like, who do you even ask? You know, when you go in there and you hit that chair, people are going to automatically think you're guilty just because of where you're sitting. Is Ryan a murderer, or did something else happen in that bathroom? Listen to Direct Appeal Season 2, The Ryan Widmer Case, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to CNN's interview with Evelyn's brother Luis Sr.'s kids, her cousins. Luis Jr. and Miriam told CNN that the family never believed anything nefarious had happened to their aunt. The belief, based on the letter sent to the family, was that she had a family of her own and moved on. According to the family, Evelyn's mother Aurelia was despondent over her absence. She would wander around seeking her daughter. On her deathbed in 2000, she made her son swear that he would not rest until he found his sister. Louise Sr. said that his and Evelyn's father, quote, died last year. He used to call me all the time and he would say, have you seen Evelyn on Facebook? I said, Dad, I've looked on the Internet, end quote. Louise Jr. told CNN that his father, Louise Sr., would constantly search for Evelyn and had hoped to find her in more recent years with the advent of the Internet and Facebook. I would see my grandmother. She would walk around Jersey City and look for her, he said. Hey, did you see Evelyn? She would think she saw her and tell my other grandmother, Hey, I think I saw Evelyn. She would say, I don't know why I can't find her. Well, they couldn't find her because she hadn't been alive since December 19, 1976. She and her baby were in a morgue in Pennsylvania, hundreds of miles away. Now, in 2021, Louise Sr., Evelyn's brother, who had spent so many years looking for his sister, was able to confirm the identification to investigators. He recognized the sketches of her face and confirmed that she had a scar on her ankle, two moles, and a painful front tooth. What's crazy is that when he retired, 
Louise Sr. moved to a sister's home in the mountains of Carbon County, Pennsylvania. Little did they know, Evelyn and her baby had been found and were buried in the same county the entire time. So, the obvious question is, who was Evelyn's boyfriend? The one who, at age 19, impregnated a 15-year-old, told her family he would care for her, and sent a letter indicating that she and their baby were safe when they were not. Luckily, the Colognes remembered his name. This from Lehigh Valley Live, quote, Luis Colon also told investigators that Luis Sierra was his sister's boyfriend and the father of the child, police said. Sierra, who went by the name Wieso, was a junior in 1976 at James Ferres High School and was described as being about 5 foot 7 inches tall and having a mole on his lip, police said. For a time, Sierra lived next door to the Colons, police learned, end quote. The family didn't know much about Evelyn and Lewis's relationship, but her sister, Migdalia, told investigators that she recalled Luis being abusive and jealous. One time he had locked Evelyn in their apartment. Evelyn had told her mother that she was afraid of them. The family was able to identify Luis Sierra as Evelyn's boyfriend when shown a driver's license photo of him. Pennsylvania State Troopers Brian Knoll and Brian Janoski showed up at the Ozone Park, Queens home of 63-year-old bus driver Luis Sierra on March 31, 2021. This all from the criminal complaint. Quote, Sierra initially denied knowing Evelyn Colon. He soon after admitted to not only knowing her, but that he dated and lived with her and that she was to have his child. Sierra confirmed they lived in Jersey City together and related that he last saw her prior to leaving for work one day and they got into an argument. He stated that when he returned, she was gone. He stated that he moved out of the apartment to his father's house soon after. He related that she had threatened to leave him, so he assumed she went to her mother's house. He related that he told her she was not going to leave. He stated that he checked her mother's house on a few occasions, but they didn't answer the door. He initially stated that he thought they moved, and later corrected himself and stated that he knew they did not move because their vehicle was still there. He could not provide an explanation as to why he made little to no effort to get in contact with Evelyn or their child. When asked about Connecticut, he provided that he and Evelyn had gone there on a day trip to look at apartments. He admitted to sending a letter to her family stating that they were moving up there. He could not explain why they would have sent the letter prior to moving there because they had to come back to Jersey City. He was asked specifically about the letter, and it was explained to him that the letter contained a birth announcement of their son, Luis Sierra Jr. He confirmed that he would have named the child Luis Jr., however, he could not recall writing that, but acknowledged it was possible. He has several other sons, none of whom is named Luis. He was told that the letter would have been sent and received after Evelyn's death. He could not provide an explanation regarding this discrepancy. End quote. Luis Sierra was arrested and extradited to Pennsylvania on April 13th to face homicide charges. So, did Luis Sierra kill Evelyn and their baby? It's hard to wrap one's head around a 19-year-old murdering his very pregnant girlfriend, cutting the baby out, cutting parts off of and dismembering the mother, putting them in suitcases, and dumping them over a bridge. But as Lieutenant Devin Brutoski, the Pennsylvania State Police Troop and Criminal Investigations Section Commander, stated at the press conference, quote, He was the last person to have been with Evelyn as they were living in an apartment in Jersey City in 1976, end quote. And it's hard to get past Sierra's admission that he wrote the letter, which was sent after Evelyn's death 
and clearly intended to convince the family not to seek her out. No one who knew Sierra knew what dark acts he had hidden in his past. This from KIRO 7, quote, Neighbors in Sierra's Ozone Park neighborhood were stunned by his arrest. Kenny Ciodot, who said he has known Sierra for 22 years, described him as a nice guy with a family. He's such a sweet guy. He's like a brother to me, Ciodot said. His wife would cook Spanish food and bring it over, and my wife would cook Indian food. We'd have dinner together. Luisa Sierra is currently awaiting trial on one count of criminal homicide. Carbon County District Attorney Michael Greek stated that 1976 law did not provide for homicide for an unborn child, so Sierra may escape punishment for his daughter's murder. And indeed, the criminal complaint I reviewed charges Sierra with one count of murder, Evelyn's. Because the case is still pending, I was unable to obtain some of the information I had questions about, such as whether there was any testable material left of the baby that could prove Sierra's paternity, or whether he had access to a car back in December 1976, whether he had any ties to Carbon County, and whether anyone remembers him buying suitcases. Where did the murder and dismemberment take place? It's all unknown. We will have to wait for Sierra's trial to answer these questions. I was somewhat shocked to learn that Sierra was released on $250,000 bail in June of 2022. His attorneys continue to to fight the charge against him, filing motions to dismiss for lack of evidence, motions to suppress, and so on. By the time Evelyn was identified, 45 years after her murder, over 100 investigators had worked her case, and thousands of man-hours had been expended on it to no avail. It took the advent of forensic genealogy to identify her, which it did in mere hours. It's mind-boggling to think that, for the entire time, Luis Sierra continued to live his life, with no one having a clue that he was connected to the horrific case of Beth Doe and her unborn baby. Evelyn's family is now trying to gather family members together for a formal goodbye to Evelyn. Her niece Miriam told CNN, quote, We're so thankful for that community, that Carbon County community, that they loved her, that they cared for her. They treated her like their own, these random people for all these years, end quote. Miriam was talking about the fact that Evelyn and her baby's gravesite, marked with a simple cross, was nearly always adorned with flowers or mementos. Miriam has set up a GoFundMe to raise money for a new headstone with Evelyn and her daughter's names on it, and to allow members of her extended family to travel to the gravesite to pay their respects. What names will the headstone bear? Evelyn Cologne and her daughter, the name the family has chosen for her, Emily Grace. Evelyn's two sisters recall that Emily was the girl's name their sister had chosen, and the middle name, Grace, representing the grace of God. Miriam wrote on the family's GoFundMe page, which I will link on the website, quote, The hopes of one day reuniting with her were long etched in our hearts. She was taken from a family who loved her, and a family longing to meet her and her child for the first time. We could never have imagined this would be the way we would see her again. The gruesome brutality of Evelyn and her baby's murder have deeply broken us. End quote. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, 
please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash dnaidpodcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.